Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so delighted that we can come together to worship you through song. Uh, we're reminded as Stacy read the scripture that all of heaven worships you in song and, and praise and singing glory to your name. And I pray that our hearts uh, this morning were, um, were with all of heaven in rejoicing at what you have done and in who you are. As we come into your word this morning, Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit working within us, that the words of Scripture would become alive in our hearts and minds, that they would uh, inform us and change us and renew us and encourage us and equip us uh, so that we can be like Jesus. And so we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This is something that I learned um, a few years ago, but our identity in Christ is the foundation of our Christian life. I'm going to quote a guy named Neil Anderson who says, I believe that our hope for growth, meaning, and fulfillment as a Christian is based on understanding who you are, specifically your identity in Christ as a child of God. Your understanding of who God is in And who you are in relationship to him is the critical foundation of your belief system and your behavior pattern as a Christian. And I I agree with Neil Anderson here. Most of the Christians that I meet who are struggling spiritually in some way, because that's one of my jobs as a pastor, is if you're struggling in some area spiritually, then I can come alongside you and, and walk alongside you. And most of the people that I meet with, if they're struggling in some way spiritually, it's usually because they have issues in identity. They either don't understand who they are in Christ, they don't understand who God the Father truly is, and and their identity as his child. Who you are in Christ is foundational to living the Christian life. The Apostle Paul actually spends a lot of time talking about who you are in Christ. And let's just jump into our text for today. We're going to be working through Ephesians in this new series. We're going to start right in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God, the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. This is why we're only going through a few verses because uh, there's a, some pretty deep theological themes here just in, in, these, uh, in these few verses. And, and I want you to just pause for a moment. Don't get too caught up right now in words like predestination and chosen. What I first want you to notice is that Paul begins explaining the spiritual blessings that we have been given, and it's coming out of praise and worship of God's goodness. Verse 3 begins, praise be to God. And then the sense you get is that Paul doesn't even stop to take a breath as he just goes through all the things that we need to praise God for. He is in a continual outpouring of praise is what's happening here. It's just kind of pouring out. It's like he's not even pausing for breath. He's just going off on all of the things that we need to be praising God for. It's just a praise of God's goodness, which means we need to read this section of Ephesians 
in the context of worship and awe, probably the first, uh, from verse 3 to verse 14, read it as, as Paul's awe of God's goodness. He's caught up in worship. And I don't think Paul's trying to correct anyone's wrong doctrine here. I think he's just trying to praise God, trying to exp- explain to the Ephesians how wonderful and how good our God is. We praise God because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now we ask, well, what are these spiritual blessings that we are blessed with? The blessings that Paul's going to list in this section, and we're only going to go through a little bit today, and then we're going to kind of build on that in the next weeks. But these statements that Paul makes are true of us because we are in Christ. We are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are sealed, we are given an inheritance, we are made alive in Christ, and we're seated with Christ. Those are all identity statements. You are adopted, you are redeemed, you are sealed, you are an inheritance and given an inheritance. You're with Christ and made alive in Christ. Those are things that are true of you. And this week we're just going to be in verses 3 and 5. So we're going to talk about how we're chosen and adopted. It says, because in love he did these things. Now, before we get too much further, I want you to notice a really key point that's going to be kind of all throughout Ephesians, but especially here. All of these spiritual blessings are given because we are in Christ. This is the key phrase in Ephesians. The phrase, in Christ, appears 11 times just in this first chapter alone. So that's a pretty key thing. I mean, that's not that long of a chapter, and he's got in Christ 11 times, and 30 times in the book of Ephesians altogether. So all of these identity statements, who you are, all of these spiritual blessings are only true because we have union with Christ. We're united with him in faith. So let's just start with this first identity statement. Because we are in Christ, we are chosen. And I think we need to be careful when we talk about being chosen because in our minds, we often think that if someone is chosen, that means another person is not chosen. Like we've all probably experienced growing up on the playground and uh, if the captains are picking people to, to play on teams, or maybe it was gym class and you've got the team captains and they're picking people, well, if you're chosen in the top kind of five, that means someone else is not chosen. And if you're chosen on the playground you'd, in the top kind of five or ten, you're kind of thinking to yourself, oh, I'm glad the captain knows how, how talented I am. I'm glad the captain knows how great I am, how fast I am, how valuable I am to the team. That's not the mentality that we want to have when we read that Paul says we are chosen. So on the playground, in the human means of choosing, being chosen is about exclusivity. It's, I'm chosen, you're not. But when God chooses, it's all about acceptance. Before the creation of the world, God chose you, and you didn't do anything to deserve that. So unlike on the playground, God didn't choose you because you were the best, the brightest, the holiest, the most spiritual, or the fastest base runner. That's not why he chose you. You were chosen because God loves you. That's why you were chosen. And that is the only reason that you were chosen, is because he loves you. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, you didn't muster up enough faith or courage. He simply chose you because he loves you. In love, he predestined you, is what Paul says. So God just really, really likes you. And you didn't do anything all that great. Before the world was created, God knew you would belong to him. So my own leaning in this passage is that we should read the word chosen here as a reference to Paul linking the Gentile believers who are primarily in Ephesus with God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. Remember the Jews are God's chosen people. And Paul, I think, is sort of in awe that now the Gentiles are chosen too. 
that God has expanded the circle and has said, now everyone can be my people. There is no uh, dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile. There is no more um, Jew or Gentile, all are one in Christ Jesus. So Paul's kind of worshipful of this God who now chooses all people. And I think that's clarified in verses 12 and 13, but we're not going to go there today. Um, I just, you know, if you're a theology student, you'll know I tipped my hand here a little bit. I'm not a believer in limited atonement. I just believe the Apostle John when he says that uh, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the whole world. Not only our sins, but the sins of the world. So just as a, we're going to go a little bit deeper here, but just as an aside for those who are like astute in their, in their theology, we might be assuming something here. I just want to stress caution about the first few verses here. We might be assuming that Paul is explaining soteriology, this theology of salvation, when what he's actually doing is just praising God for the wonderful gift of salvation offered to the whole world that is a little bit mysterious in how it works. John Stott, I think, puts it well. He says, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election, and we should be aware of any who try to work it out too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to the problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. And the problem being, what is the interaction between our free will and God's plans? People have debated this for, well, 2,000 years. So it's okay if we, if we can hold this in mystery. But what I really want to... Maybe I could put it like this. The baseline is this. If you're here today and you're not sure what you believe, you don't know if God is real, you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, and then you read these words and you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I'm just not chosen. Maybe I'm just not chosen. Well, I want you to stop that line of thinking right now because you are chosen. God is calling you. You might not be fully hearing him yet. You might not have surrendered your life to him yet, but you are called. Because God desires that none should perish. God desires that all people would come to salvation and a knowledge of truth. That's his desire. And along these same lines, I've also met um, quite a few Christians, actually, who have incredibly low self-worth. They see themselves only as miserable sinners. Or they believe that they're somehow not measuring up somehow. So here's what I pray for you. If you've ever felt like you don't measure up in the Christian life, like you're always failing and everyone else is succeeding, or that God's standards are here and you're never meeting them and you're just a miserable sinner who can't progress in the Christian life, here's what I want you to hear from the scripture today. I pray that this truth would strike into your heart really deeply. God chose you. You didn't do anything to earn this. You don't earn God's acceptance. You already have it because he chose you. He sees you as valuable. Because he chose you. So if you don't feel valuable, what I want you to take away is that the creator of the entire universe chose you and sees you as valuable enough that the precious blood of his son would be spilled for you. And he sees you now as his very own child. So even if you don't feel valuable, even if you have negative thought patterns, I pray that the truth of this scripture would start to break through in that. You are chosen because you are loved by the creator of the universe. And because you were chosen, you didn't earn your salvation. You didn't sneak in the back door. I've actually talked to people who are like, I don't really know like, if I'm supposed to be saved. Like I said the sinner's prayer, so I guess I'm in, but like, maybe God didn't want me there. 
Like, you, get, you can't sneak in the back door. It's not like you said the right magic words and God's like, oh, I didn't want that person here. Like, they said the words, though, so I guess we got to let them in. That's not how this works. He chose you. He wanted you because he loves you. That means you can stop your striving. You're secure. David Benner says, the Christian God doesn't turn away from sinners in disgust, but moves towards us, bringing his redemptive presence. Isn't that what Jesus says when the Pharisees criticize him for who he's hanging out with? And he says, well, the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do, and I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He moves towards sinners so that they would be redeemed. Now, whenever you're chosen for something, there's usually a purpose behind it, right? When God chose his people in the Old Testament, they're chosen first because he loves them, but there is a purpose to this. They're called by God because they are God's people to live a certain way and to accomplish certain things. So then Paul starts to elaborate here what it means to be chosen, right? He says, we were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Again, I can imagine some people might be worried thinking, but I'm not holy and blameless. I'm a mess. Does that mean I'm not called? Does it mean I'm not chosen? No, let me explain this. Because we are chosen in Christ, it's all about who we are in Christ. So because we are in Christ, because we are united with him, Christ is our perfection. Jesus took our place on the cross. Scripture says he bore our sins in his body so we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. And Paul explains it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this does not depend on you at all. All it depends on is that Christ is united with you and you now have his righteousness. We call this positional sanctification. It simply means because we are chosen in Christ, his righteousness covers us. God sees you as holy even if you're like, I'm far from being holy. But you're still called holy. Again, there's no arrogance here. You didn't deserve this. This is simply given to you. But how incredible is it that you would be given Christ's righteousness so that God would see us as holy and blameless even though we, we seldom live up to that perfect standard. Now, although we all receive Christ's righteousness, we know that practically speaking, we're not holy and blameless. However, because we are chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless, we then start to live this out. We start to try and live this out. So positionally before God, we're holy and blameless, but practically speaking, we go, okay, I'm holy and blameless. What does that mean? How do I live this out? Well, because Christ is holy, we can be holy. I mean, what I'm saying is this, that because we have the empowering of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to sin and opens our eyes to God's truth, with the Holy Spirit and our will saying, I want to do the will of God, the Holy Spirit says, I can work with that, and you and the Holy Spirit united together pursue holiness. Doesn't mean you do it perfectly. Doesn't mean you don't have some moments where you fail or, or mess things up. But it does mean that you're on the trajectory of becoming more like Christ. And because the Holy Spirit empowers us, we can live for holiness and all those sins that once bound us or maybe we are blind to them and we, now we are aware of them and we can be free of them. Things can be defeated and broken. However, living this life of holiness is always rooted in our identity in Christ because there is a way of doing this to say, okay, we're gonna get really legalistic about it again. We're gonna say, here's the rules. Here's the do's and the do nots. Do it. And, and actually, that's, that's going a little bit 
too far because first we have to understand we can only do this because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. And we do this rooted in our identity in Christ. Here's how Neil Anderson puts it. Being a Christian is not just a matter of getting something, like heaven or something like that. It's a matter of being someone. A Christian is not simply a person who's forgiven and goes to heaven. A Christian, in terms of his or her deepest identity, is a saint, a spiritually born child of God, a divine masterpiece, a child of light, a citizen of heaven. It's not what you do as a Christian that determines who you are. It is who you are that determines what you do. And that's actually a key. Right? You don't just try and live like a Christian. It's like, no, because I'm a Christian, I live this certain way. Understanding your identity in Christ is essential to living the Christian life. If you just try and be holy because good boys and good girls are holy, you're going to exhaust yourself. Right? That's exactly what Jesus talks about. That's what scripture says. It says the law is good, but we can't measure up to the law. So if you're just trying to be a law follower, again, you're going to be exhausted. And you're always going to feel like you never measure up. But what scripture actually teaches is that we draw our strength for holy living and for living out our new lives in Christ from our union with Christ. That's what Jesus teaches us in John 15. Do you remember what he says? He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And here's, to me, this is the key. A tree, when it's properly planted and, and the, when the branches are attached well and everything is going well, the tree doesn't work hard to produce the fruit, it just naturally happens. Simply by being in good soil, near good water, the branches bear fruit. Without a lot of striving or effort, it's just a natural occurrence. That's what Jesus is getting at here. If you remain in him, so you keep your eyes fixed on him, you pursue him with wholeheartedness, fruit will come. It's going to be produced in you. It's a natural outpouring of your position in Christ. So all we need to do is abide in him, listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin so we can put to death fleshly desires and follow God's way of abundant and thriving life. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, well, what happens when I don't pursue holiness? What happens when I fall back into my old patterns of, of behavior, the sinful things that bound me or destroyed me? Because that happens. Sometimes people fall back into old sin. They fall back into old habits and old desires. What happens then? Do you need to crawl back to God like a worm? Do you need to earn his love again? Well, no, you didn't earn it in the first place. He simply poured his love out upon you before you ever deserved it. So you are holy and blameless in his sight. Your sin is covered by the blood of Christ. But you do come when you're caught in that place of sin or desire is ruling you. And, and you confess your sin and you repent and you ask for a new heart. You ask for that sin nature and that desire to be cut off from you. And you know that Jesus is faithful and just and he's slow to anger and he's quick to forgive. So even in those moments of confession and repentance of sin, do you know what you're doing when you confess and repent of sin? You're pursuing holiness. That's what it looks like in this life, in these fallen bodies with sin nature still sort of battling within us to pursue holiness. It means that you confess and you repent. That's pursuing holiness. Because you're not allowing sin to dominate you. You're actively wrestling to make sure it gains no hold on you. So even in those moments where you're confessing wrongdoing, you know what it sounds like to me you're doing? It sounds like you're pursuing holiness. Holiness. What it looks like to stop pursuing holiness is not to 
Sometimes we think, okay, if I mess up and fail, that means I'm no longer holy or I'm not pursuing holiness. That's not what it is. If you're aware of, of the mistake you've made and you confess it and you repent of it and you go to the person you wronged and you ask for their forgiveness, that's pursuing holiness. What it looks like when you're not pursuing holiness is when you don't do any of that. When you stop confessing your sin. When you take no interest in repentance and you celebrate sinful things and sinful behaviors. So I think what a really big part, a key part of pursuing holiness in the Christian life is, is going confession and repentance of sin is not shameful. It's a part of pursuing holiness. Bringing everything into the light so that God can deal with it, so we can be free of it. Now the reality of our Christian life is that we are becoming who we are in Christ. We're in process. We're learning. But we can only advance if we understand that God loved us and chose us in Christ. God chose you, knowing every wonderful, beautiful thing about you and knowing every terrible, sinful, selfish thing about you. And God chose you and loves you. And God doesn't want to crush you. He wants to redeem you, to make you holy, to make you a new creation. So the emphasis of the Christian message is not our sin. Sometimes you get that. You kind of think that the emphasis of the Christian message is just how sinful and bad humanity is. I don't think that's the actual emphasis of the message at all. The emphasis of the Christian message is that God loves sinners. And his grace, mercy, and forgiveness is extended precisely to those who do not deserve it, but are desperate to receive it. So the emphasis of the gospel is the love of God for the whole world, especially those who know they are sinners. David Benner writes this. He says, Christians who assume that God is preoccupied with sin tend themselves to adopt that same focus. In fact, they often seem to think that they are honoring God by taking sin as seriously as they do. And sometimes they judge other Christians by how seriously those Christians seem to treat sin. Often they become uncomfortable with an emphasis on divine love. They feel an urgent need to, to balance the divine love teaching by highlighting God's hatred of sin. Unfortunately, while they may give intellectual assent to God's love, they often experience very little of it. He says, what a different relationship begins to develop when you realize that God is head over heels in love with you. God is simply giddy about you. He just can't help loving you. And he loves you deeply and extravagantly just as you are. God knows you're a sinner, but your sins do not surprise him, nor do they reduce in the slightest his love for you. And if you want chapter and verse on that, Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he knew your sin. He knew every terrible, horrible thing humans are capable of doing. And he said, yes, but I love them so much I'm going to die for them. Is that not an over-the-top love? This is not a transactional love that says, okay, if you measure up to this standard, then I guess I'll love you. It says, you can't measure up to my standard. You're, you're a mess. I'm going to die for you and love you. That is a, a ridiculous type of love from a human standpoint. I always want to point out, though, that God loves us too much to let us stay the way we are in our sin. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, we put away the old life and we begin to live the new abundant life in Christ. He just loves us too much to let us stay in our sin. Now, not only does God choose you, but he adopts you into his own family. And that's how we're going to wrap up here is the last verse of this passage. Chapter, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So not only are you chosen, but you're adopted. God gives you firstborn son status. And in the culture of the day, the firstborn son got the whole inheritance. Everything the father had is now given to the son. 
And all of us, therefore, are given the whole inheritance of our Father's kingdom. And it gives God great pleasure to adopt you. And so again, if you've been thinking any, at any moment in this message that, well, God doesn't want me as his child, I'm just going to tell you you're wrong. If you've ever had the thought, God wouldn't want me as his child, that's simply not true. It's just not true. He does want you. It gives him great pleasure to have you as his child. And if you're thinking, well, you don't know how messed up I am, well, you're right, I don't know how messed up you are. But God knows and he wants to reach into that mess and purify you. He wants to make you a new creation. He can make something beautiful out of whatever mess it is that you think you've got yourself in. And he wants to adopt you. That means he wants to give you everything that his family has. That's what adoption means. It doesn't mean you're a second-class citizen. Sometimes people think, okay, well, I guess we're adopted, but like, you know, that's just a word we use. I can speak with a little bit of authority on adoption because I was adopted. My parents had waited years for a child to be available, and then they got the call that a baby was available. They had to drive into Calgary, and they went to an office building. I was a baby. Keep in mind, I was a baby. And they went into this uh, person's office, and they said, oh, you're here, just wait. And then they went somewhere and got me. I was a little baby. This was being stored in a file cabinet or something. I don't know, like with all a bunch of babies. And then they, they handed me to them, to my parents, and the lady said, well, we'll give you a few minutes to decide. My parents were like, decide what? Like, well, whether you want him or not. I'm like, well, of course we want him. But then Lori heard that story and she's like, how many people do you think didn't want you? <laughs> how many people like, gave you back? Like, no, not this child. Not, uh, it's a little weird head. Head shape is strange. But for my parents, I mean, it was never a question. Like, as soon as they had me, I was theirs. And that's actually exactly how it is with God. God is not going, well, not that one and not that one. He's going, your mind and your mind and your mind and your mind, and I want them all. And he just wants you to be in his family. It's not just that he wants to save you. It's that he wants you to be in his family. He's not wrestling with whether he wants you as his child or not. He absolutely does. And so adoption means you're fully part of the family. You're not second best or second class. Scripture actually says you're a co-heir with Christ. Again, that's insane that you would be a co-heir, that we would be co-heirs with Christ. But that's what adoption is. It means you're part of the family, the whole of it. You were wanted. You were chosen. Paul explains adoption a little bit further in Romans 8. He says, you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. You should behave instead like God's very own children, adopted into his family, calling him father. For his Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we will share his treasures. Here's a key line. For everything God gives to his son, Christ, is ours too. That's almost hard to believe. That everything that is given to the perfect son of God is given to us. But that's what scripture says. Why does God lavish us with such extravagance? Do you know why? It's because he is just so delighted and pleased to have us as his children. And when you are delighted and pleased to have children, you lavish them with love. Because that's actually what Paul says. It says he adopted us as his children because he loved us and he was pleased to do so. God really likes you. I think there's a lot of people who don't know that God actually likes them. So actually now, sometimes when I'm talking to people, I don't say, do you know that God loves you? Because that's kind of a theological buzzword. Oh yeah, yeah, God loves me, God loves me. You do you know that God likes you? He really likes you. 
Think about it in human terms, if you, if you have children. If you have children, they are a delight to you. Your children bring you pleasure simply because they are yours. They don't have to do anything special or unique for you to love them. You simply love them because they are yours. And that's what I mean when I say that God likes you. You are his child. You bring a smile to God's face. It says at the end of verse 5 that he adopted you because it gave him great pleasure to do so. So he doesn't adopt you because he must adopt you. He doesn't make you his child grudgingly. He is absolutely delighted that you have become his child. I was talking with a person a few years ago um, about a time when God told her what, what he liked about her. She was studying something about the Holy Spirit, just reading some scripture and jotting some notes down, and she had a funny little thought come into her head that made her laugh out loud. And as soon as she laughed out loud, she heard the voice of the Spirit, uh, the, the Father say through the Spirit, I really like the way you laugh. And she came to me going, do you think that was God? Like, does God say stuff like that? I'm like, absolutely, that's what God would say to you. He likes you. He likes little things about you. He likes those little quirks and things that make you, you. And there's also things that you might do that your father in heaven would rather you not do. It's like as much as I love my children, they're not perfect children. They disobey. Sometimes their disobedience puts them in dangerous situations. But even when our children misbehave, I still love them. Their behavior does not affect the depth of my love for them. My love is not transactional like that. I can be frustrated, I can be angry, I can be disappointed, but my love for my children never changes. And if I, an imperfect human father, can have love like that for my children, how much more do you think your heavenly father's love for you is consistent and unchanging? And that's the last aspect of being God's children I think is important to understand is that even when we're selfish and even when we sin and even when we fail and we struggle, our Heavenly Father never gives up on us because we're His children. His love for us never fails. It never runs out. And some of you are thinking, I ran pretty far away from God. Would God still love me? Yes. And He wants you to come back and live like His child. That's the whole thing in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. Just start coming home. And your Father's gonna run to you and celebrate. And this is so important to our identity, that God loves you and he adopted you to be his child. That means he's never going to abandon you. He might discipline you to keep you from falling into harm and sin, but he loves you. And if there's one area where I think people get confused, it's here. I think there's this idea that God's love is transactional, that if we sin, then God's love for us diminishes. So it's almost like this idea like, okay, if I do everything perfectly, then God's love will be more abundant. But if I fail in some way, then God's love will diminish. That's a transactional God. That's not, that's not love. That's not a never-ending, never-failing, never-stopping, never-giving-up love. But that's what God has. He has said love for you. It's an unfailing love. God's love isn't transactional. We need to know our Father loves us and that he will never leave us or forsake us. Nothing can separate us from our Father's love. And even when you sin, God loves you. And even when you run, God loves you because you're his child in Christ. And God doesn't want to see you perish and he doesn't want to see your sin destroy you. This is why we're encouraged to be holy as God is holy. It's not because God is demanding and harsh and mean and angry and says, live like this and we can't live like that. That's not what he's doing. We, live, we want to be holy as God is holy because God wants what is best for his children. Live like the royal child you are. Live free of your sinful desires and live abundantly in Christ. We're going to talk more in a few weeks about how sometimes we think we're free, but we're actually slaves to our desires. And all God is saying is live free of slavery to your desires and live the way I always created you to be. That's the life of freedom. 
Then we're not slaves to our desires. I'm gonna call the worship team up and as they're getting ready, I just wanna leave you with a few notes. Mostly just my hope for you is that you would see that your identity in Christ is foundational to the entirety of your Christian life. You need to understand how much love the Father has for you. He's not a cold and distant deity who demands you earn your place through pious devotion. He chose you. And not only did he choose you, he adopted you, giving you full status as his child. And if you know that you're adopted, that you are God's child, and that adopting you was a delight to your heavenly father, that's gonna allow you to experience the love of the father in ever greater measure. Because you're gonna go, the foundational truth of who I am is that God loved me, he chose me, he's called me his own. That's a powerful place to start your Christian journey in. So just before I pray for you, there's a, if you wanna kind of explore this a little bit, one of the things I sometimes do is I go, do you have trouble calling God father? Like, do you feel like it's inappropriate for you to call God Father? That's a bit of a warning sign that you don't fully grasp this yet. That's something to pray into. Say, Holy Spirit, would you show me the Father love of God, the heart of the Father for me? The other thing I think that's important is to go, do you know that you are, are you comfortable calling yourself a child of God? Are you comfortable saying that, that you are a co-heir with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places? That's a foundational piece. And if you kind of wrestle with that, you know, again, that's something to take to prayer and say, Father, I don't think I fully understand. I, I don't think I see myself the way you see me. So maybe just ask that you'd be able to see yourself the way the Father sees you. Let me pray over you and then we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to call you Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you pour the love of the Father into our hearts. And so I pray for everyone gathered here today and everyone who's watching online. I pray that your love would be poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit in greater and, and just in a way that we experience. I pray that we would know deep in the fiber of our being that we are loved, that there is nothing we can do, there is nothing we can say that will uh, stop your love, but that we will just receive your love. So I pray, Lord, that we would go together as we go through this journey on Ephesians, that we would experience your love in greater measure. That's Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus, that we would understand your love, though it's too great to understand fully, that our roots would grow down deep into your love for us. So I pray that we, you would increase in us our knowledge of your love. And so in return, we would love you more. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.